Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that knows supply-side economics is fake shit. But you should still probably supply slide us some money on Patreon. (laughs) Today we have Kellen and... Zoe! Yes! And given it that it's the holiday season, um, you know, people are spending time with their families. Maybe your conservative grandpa believes in trickle-down economics. Maybe you have a pussy-hat-wearing aunt who thinks that Ronald Reagan was the last good Republican. <laughs> God help you. Um, God help her. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe your family's like perfect and everybody hates Ronald Reagan and you just want to be able to talk shit um about him better than your cousin who everybody thinks is so smart like you know whatever whatever reason you might have to need some ammunition on our 40th president we are here to give it to you reagan sucked and for the next hour we're gonna tell you why yes today's topic is ronald reagan um zoe and i were talking earlier like i said it's today it's just two girls chatting Discussing one of the worst men on the planet. Um, Just not passing the Bechtel test at all. Not passing the Bechtel (laughs) test. This is not a feminist podcast anymore. Um, It's fine. Actually, I think we're going to talk about Nancy Reagan, too. So maybe we'll pass the Bechtel test there. That's true. We'll we'll pass at some point. Also, I feel like talking about why a man sucks is a, you know, a gray area. There you go. Okay. We're still (laughs) feminists. Love to see Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've just like compiled, um, just like some history, some, some factoids for you. Um, this is going to be a great learning and friendship adventure. Um, I guess to like just lay out some stuff for people who, um, may or may not be super familiar with Ronald Reagan. He was the 40th president. He, um, was elected in 1980, beat Jimmy Carter, uh, started his term at the beginning of 1981 and served through 1989. Um, somebody that people like to credit for like the fall of communism, uh, LOL, for um, being some sort of economics genius. Um, in reality, he had dementia and everybody was hiding it through his second term, which is just wild. Um, We're not even going to talk about that. I mean, we could if you wanted to, Zoe, but there's so many bad things that he did and like having a debilitating disease is just not actually one of them, although it is insane that we had a president who uh, was like literally losing his mind in the Oval Office and uh, everybody around him was conspiring to make sure nobody knew that. Yeah, Um, which is kind of what's happening now, except that no one's pretending it's not right yes yes (laughs) yes and i feel like joe biden is like we're just oh god you know like joe gets elected we're gonna have literally the exact same thing happen it's just gonna be like an old guy who's like full-on senility mode uh just hanging out so we love to see it um yeah so there's like a lot a lot of like really bad things that happened during uh, Ronald Reagan's illustrious career in the presidency. We're not even really like touching on his time as um, governor of California. But um, one of the like the big ones that I think helps explain some of the other stuff that comes later is that 
Reagan was really instrumental in ushering in the era of evangelical hyper-conservatism as like a big thing in American politics. Um, Obviously, as everybody is probably aware, like the evangelical far right is kind of omnipresent um, and a really powerful force in especially the Republican Party. Um, and this sort of rose up with Ronald Reagan. They were reinforcing each other, the two going back and forth, like two kids playing a demonic game of leapfrog. Um, and really like it started when Reagan was campaigning for president, um, in 1979, like as we were getting ready for the 1980 election and the primaries, um, he became good buds with this guy, Jerry Falwell, who some of y'all probably know. Um, he founded Liberty University, uh, which is a crazy place. He is the father of Jerry Falwell Jr., who has been in the news a lot over the last few years as like a prominent Trump surrogate, one of those people who believes that God is like acting through Trump naturally. Um, and the reason that he's important to us today is that he founded what he called the moral majority in 1979. Um, and this was a group, an, an official organization that tried to get evangelicals organized to participate in electoral politics. Um, this group was endorsed by a number of people who, again, you might recognize like um, Pat Robertson, who uh, in like 2005, I guess, made a comment on TV about how uh, Hurricane Katrina was punishment for the United States being so chill with, like, gay sex. Um, uh, actually, Jerry Falwell himself in, I think, 1988 said essentially the same thing about the AIDS crisis, that um, gay people just, like, deserve to die from AIDS. We're going to get to that later. But, uh, yeah, so Jerry Falwell, moral majority, the context for this is that Jimmy Carter himself was an evangelical. He was a Southerner. And there were some people who had high hopes for that as sort of like a Republican form of identity politics. But um, Carter was something was like pretty liberal, uh, you know, not whatever. We're not going to talk about Jimmy Carter and whether he like lives up to socialist standards. Obviously, obviously he doesn't. But he's like a pretty liberal dude. Um, and evangelicals, especially people who wanted to be more involved in politics, were upset about that. And that was sort of the reason that Jim, Jerry Falwell, sort of the, the the big motivating factor for him to start the moral majority. And it was a group that got a lot of funding very quickly and was really effective in its strategy, which was to get um, church leaders, like men who, preachers, reverends, etc., um, to like be trained basically to act as electoral organizers to get um, evangelicals who had traditionally actually not been super active in politics, which is something that's hard to imagine now, like to get them um, registered to vote and to get them out to the polls. And they were like extremely effective in this. Um, and uh, yeah, so Reagan was, not just like rode a lot of that to um, his uh, first term in um, the presidency, but he actually like collaborated with these people. Like I said, they, or maybe I didn't say, but they, they endorsed him during the primary before he had gotten the nomination. He appointed their executive director, who is a reverend to be a campaign advisor. And then this guy who, again, is like, literally, he's just a reverend. Like he's a church official. 
um, to be his education secretary, which is, again, just like bonkers. Um, more on education under Reagan later as well. Uh, but yeah, so Reagan both legitimized and benefited from and then helped to build up um, this like insurgent uh, insurgent wing of the Republican Party, the religious right, who were, you know, the ones who they had been galvanized partly by Roe versus Wade that happened, or Roe v. Wade that happened in the early 70s. They had been galvanized by responses um, to Vietnam, by left organizing, by the sort of counterculture of the 1960s, um, by the failures of Jimmy Carter. Uh, yeah, and Reagan was like, the horse they needed to ride in on and uh yeah he served him served him pretty well yeah i also just want to add this might be obvious from the whole christianity thing but um that under reagan this was really when abortion started becoming such a prominent Mm. talking point of the right um and that also coincided a lot with second wave feminism um if you i i know some people don't think that the waves of feminism properly represent it but what is known as the second wave feminism same same time period Mm, yeah that's a really good point so it's a it's it's a reaction to feminism as well and um another thing that's like happening sort of during the same time period in the 1970s is the equal rights amendment so this push to get an amendment to the constitution um that grants equal rights that there's you know you can't discriminate on basis of um sex Um, not gender at that point because people weren't thinking that way, but on the basis of sex. And um, that was another thing that was really galvanizing. It was um, for evangelicals, uh, really opposed to the idea that equal rights should be enshrined in the Constitution. Phyllis Schlafly, I can never say her last name, uh, was a woman who became famous campaigning against that and was a huge proponent of Ronald Reagan. So yeah, Zoe, it's like, yeah, totally like the, they did not like feminists. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't they did not love to see it yes and here we are today <laughs> shit talking them um so i guess it's mutual yeah um yeah then i think the next thing we wanted to talk about is reagan's foreign policy um so he was involved in as it turns out a lot of imperialism um no. <laughs> I wanted to focus specifically on Nicaragua, um, which we talked about on our Las Anonistas episode. Uh, so we love a cross-episode connection. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> but in preparation for, for this, I found a Rolling Stone article from 1978 because I wanted to get more of a sense of like the thoughts of it at the time. More as looking back, I feel like it's easy to be like, of, of course that was bad. Like now we know. Um so this article was by William Greider. Uh, it's called Reagan's Dangerous Game in Nicaragua. Wait, and, Zoe, what year was this yeah. from? 1987. Cool. Awesome. Continue. So I just wanted to read a couple of quotes from this article. So the first says, The Reagan administration is playing a dangerous game in Honduras, intentionally flirting with war. While the White House continues to claim that its military buildup here is strictly for training exercises, the Sandinistas and most Hondurans believe that the administration is trying to push both sides towards war in order to justify American military intervention in Nicaragua. So, in obvious case of imperialism, we, we know what we're seeing. We hate it. um and then continuing towards the end of the article um the second quote i want to read 
Reagan's final days will be a difficult period for all the players in Central America. The Sandinistas know that they are capable of defeating the Contras in battle, even wiping them out, but they also know that a clear-cut victory would increase the risk of direct American intervention. The Reagan administration, mirrored in the Contragate scandal, knows that it is little time left to defeat the Sandinistas. Will it simply walk away from a lost cause, or will it launch a desperate strike against the Nicaraguan government? The recent announcement by the United States that it would be sending three thousand troops and 4,500 National Guardsmen from eight states and Puerto Rico to Honduras to participate in joint military exercises indicates that Reagan intends to raise the stakes in this dangerous game. Uh, and to find out how all of that turned out, you can go listen to our Senanistas episode. <laughs> <laughs> but Reagan did a lot of similar things, you know, kind of all over the world. I feel like the Iran-Contra is probably the more talked about of those things yeah yeah so the like the iran contra affair is like exactly like linked to what you were just talking about so the sandinistas again you should really listen to our actual episode on this um (laughs) but uh the sandinistas um were like a rebel group um that took power in um nicaragua in uh the early 80s and well i guess no the late 70s sorry um and they were a leftist group they established a revolutionary government um you know certainly they uh weren't perfect but um and you can hear how uh, the failures of some of the Sandinista leadership to adhere to socialist feminist principles really proved to be part of their undoing. Again, <laughs> where are Sandinista's episode? <laughs> um, but uh, they were also fighting counter-revolutionary right-wing forces, um, which Zoe mentioned in the the, um, the quotes that she just read from that New York um, I was about to say New York Times. Oh my God. <laughs> Rolling Stone. Rolling yeah. Stone. Rock on. Um, the Rolling Stone article. <laughs> Um, so the Contras were, were the, the right-wing counter-revolutionaries, and um, uh, f- Congress had explicitly prohibited um, uh, the Reagan administration from um, sending them support. Uh, so the way that, that Reagan um, and his advisors, and how much Reagan was actually involved in this, again, is something that it's like hard to know because he is at the beginning stages of dementia um, during his second term. But um, what the way that they were able to get money to this to the Contras without like Congress knowing about it, because obviously Congress controls the purse strings, is uh, by doing something that is was also illegal. So. <laughs> After the um, the Iranian Revolution, when um, uh, the U.S. backed um, uh, uh, government in Iran was overthrown um, by the uh, like Islamic um, revolutionary forces, um, the U.S. government established a uh, an arms embargo with Iran. So what? Reagan figured out how to do, or the people that he worked with, was to sell um, arms illegally to Iran by way of Israel. Um, So Israel was acting as a mediator and then used the money that was paid by Iran to Israel to the United States that the Congress would never see because all of this was going on under the table to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. Um, which is, I mean, what, 
<laughs> what more is there to say about it? I, it's just, it's, um, so a lot of people think that like a lot of stuff is like, oh, it's a CIA conspiracy or it's a conspiracy theory that like the CIA is doing all this like black ops stuff or whatever. The Iran-Contra affair is just like another example of like the bogus lengths that the United States government will go to to affect its goals, which frequently are preventing the rise of like left-wing politics anywhere on the entire planet. Um, and like eventually uh, there like the story broke that this was this was happening. Um, Ronald Reagan went on TV and was like, the United States, uh, yeah, we kind of like fucked up on this one. Um, and then uh, people, a couple of people were um, um, sent to jail for what had happened, were convicted. Um, some of them were indicted, and George H.W. Bush, who had been Ronald Reagan's vice president, um, then pardoned them. Again, you love to see it. I feel like there needs to be a different term for quote-unquote conspiracy theories like we're talking about, where it's like the U.S. actually hiding something, versus like flat earthers. <laughs> Just as an aside, it doesn't seem fair. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Um Sometimes there is a conspiracy and your theory about it is right. So <laughs> what do you call that? Um, I don't know. Speaking of conspiracy theories, let's talk about trickle-down economics. <laughs> uh, perfect. Oh, well. um, Zoe, I just want to compliment you and myself by extension um, on doing a really great job plugging our other episodes on this podcast. <laughs> um because we did talk a little bit about trickle-down economics um, on our episode in, on modern monetary theory, uh, which goes into detail about like competing economic theories that um, are not engineered specifically to hurt poor people. So the basic idea behind Reaganomics, which is also known as supply-side economics, which is also known as trickle-down economics, which is also known as neoliberal economics, and it's like purest and most distilled form, is that if rich people have more money, they will spend it in such a way that the economy will grow and working class people will see a benefit in terms of like more jobs being created and higher wages. If your goal is to help poor people, why wouldn't you just give them money directly? Um, <laughs> that's a question that trickle-down economics doesn't answer. Um, and doesn't think you should be asking, in fact. Uh, in theory, as this, this sort of school of thought goes, the government would make back the money that it lost by slashing tax rates because the economy at large is growing just, you know, exponentially. Um, a smaller tax base percentage-wise would still bring in enough to cover expenditures, especially because the other side of trickle-down economics is that you're slashing government programs um, like a crazy person with a machete. This is the excuse that's given to dramatically cut taxes on income and on capital gains, with the latter being the way that the uber-wealthy like really accumulate a lot of their wealth, and again, also an excuse to, to cut government spending. Um, there's some debate around this, like, you know, how earnest are people who believe in supply-side economics? Um, I personally don't think that a lot of people who supported Reaganomics really actually gave a shit about whether their rising tide would 
like really lift all boats um, because the main goal was not to buoy the entire economy, but rather to help the rich get richer. Um, and the most significant results of like this economic policy were like um, something that we're still dealing with these effects today, the rapid increase in the wealth gap. Um, I just can't then, really believe that giving more money to rich people to improve the economy didn't work. It is shocking. <laughs> that Sounds you, like a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. It turns out when you give rich, rich people more money, they hoard it and spend it on stupid stuff. Um, and it doesn't, in fact, trickle down to poor people, almost as if they never intended to help poor people at all. Um of course, the flip side of the coin, which like doubly injures um, the working class, was the impoverishment of government programs. And the like third thing that happened was the explosion of the national debt. The national debt literally tripled under Ronald Reagan. So, like many of our listeners probably were not around for the Reagan years. Um, those who were were probably pretty young, so maybe you don't remember them well. But I'm sure most of y'all listening right now do remember the clusterfuck that was the W. Bush pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> pregnancy. God. Um, the presidency. The W. Bush presidency. Um, and you probably also remember that, like, he was, quote-unquote, like a fiscal conservative um, and managed to spend trillions of dollars while cutting both taxes and government programs. And I bring this up to really drive home the point that the only people who actually unironically, genuinely give a shit about the national debt are centrist Democrats who have bought into the idea that cutting spending is going to win over independence. It, it's unbelievable. It is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. Because, newsflash, Republican politicians don't actually care about spending the government's money. They just don't want to spend it on poor people. <laughs> what? I, yeah, I get, like, real fired up, like, even just thinking about this and, like, how it's become something that, like, you don't hear Republicans talking about the national debt for the most part, except for, like, Ron Paul, basically, um, when there's a Republican in um, the White House, except to say no to proposals for government programs. And then when there's a Democrat in the White House, Republicans are like, no, 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 national debt. Like we can't, we can't expend any, any sort of government program. Um, and there are so many Democrats who buy into that and are like, have truly adopted the national debt as a thing that they care about. Um, but they don't care about it in a cynical way as a tool to like, again, keep the rich rich and the poor poor. They care about it because they've like they're playing the game that Republicans have set up for them to play, and like Ronald Reagan was hugely influential in creating this myth of the national debt as something that matters to the everyday person. At the same time as he, like I said, exploded it. Yeah, I have a question. I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but I feel pretty confident that I could say that like the top. Uh, you know, reason or expenditure for national debt is like military complex. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what the other major ones are because it's right. It's only when like more liberal policies would pass that suddenly there's no money for them. Mm, yeah. Let's see. Let's see what our national budget 
I'm curious what else people are okay with us going into debt for besides <laughs> the great and powerful military. Right. So it, it because the national debt like doesn't, it's not like, oh, we went into debt because of this. It, you can't say like this program contributed to the national debt, but this program didn't under any given year. But you can mm-hmm. look at like how the government spent money on the years that it did go into debt. But um, if you look at, like, I'm just pulling up discretionary spending by the government um, under Obama right now, just because that's the the one that comes up. Um, so there's two different, basically, there's two different sort of forms of spending. Okay, sorry. So, yes, there's so there's two different kinds of, like, spending that goes into the federal budget. Um, the first is mandatory spending, which is like set out, um, that like Congress doesn't have, or the, like the government sort of itself doesn't have discretion over, like, um, you could create laws to change the mandatory spending, but it's like spending that is set out prior to that year, um, uh, to be spent. So that's stuff like, um, the biggest ones there are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Um, and that those programs are um, uh, like a little, they're a little more than half of government spending. Um, and then there's discretionary spending, which is the stuff that like gets decided on, I believe, year over year. Um, and that is that is like where defense stuff comes from of the discretionary spending um more than half of it is the military is the military goes to the military um and so there's other stuff that's in there so that's where we have like food and agricultural subsidies money allocated to transportation um money allocated to like science and research money that goes to um education money that goes to like actually running the government so to give you an idea um as uh as much as food and agricultural subsidies are we get 13 billion um from discretionary spending in 2015 the military budget was um just under 600 billion so damn there you go Mm, that's my annual budget too (laughs) so yeah so Great question, Zoe. Um, (laughs) Love to look things up in real time. Yeah. So the military spending is the by far the biggest chunk. Like it is several like more than I think like 10 times larger than the next biggest thing that the Congress has the ability to like actually set um, set the spending levels year over year. Um, Entitlements that are baked into our spending are still more than the military um, so there at least is a, uh, a positive there, but yeah, we're still spending, um, well over half a trillion dollars every year on our military. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you cared about national debt, obviously that would be a problem. But again, <laughs> uh, for most Republicans, except for Ron Paul, that is not something that they're concerned about. Yeah, I wish that all of that wasn't true, but I'm also like a little proud of myself that I made up 
that fact out of an educated guess and it was correct. So it's really a double-sided coin for me right now. <laughs> a little bit of like a personal win, but like, oh, the rest of society does. does but I'm like, I would have loved to be wrong, um, but I wasn't. So, yeah, so it sucks. <laughs> it does suck when Zoe's right sometimes. Um, but we all, we all have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you for deep diving into that question, Kellen. Um, I think the next little thing we want to, not little, the next big thing we would like to talk about um, that we can all thank Reagan for um, is taking our judicial system and filling it with ultra conservatives and then also re-segregating American schools. You love to see it. You don't love Small to see it. to tackle. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, like, one of my not favorite things, but, like, favorite things about the, like, Reagan presidency is the fact that he just, like, really, like, fucked us over for literally generations um, with the judicial system. He is really the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Truly, yes. <laughs> um, so if you are ever like, hey, it sucks that we had Ant- Antonin Scalia on... Uh, on our Supreme Court for Anthony Scalia, Antonin Scalia, whatever. It doesn't matter if I don't remember his first name. Sucks that we had Scalia on our uh, on our bench for uh, like 30 years. Um, if you wanted to thank somebody for that, that person would be Ronald Reagan. He did, in fact, appoint Scalia. Um, he also appointed Sandra Day O'Connor, who by she, I think, was his first um, appointee. Um, she was, like, I think an effort to be, like, moderate in who he appointed. Obviously, that did not, that trend did not continue with Scalia. Um, the third person he got to appoint, because he did get to appoint fucking three judges or justices, um, was Anthony Kennedy. And, again, as, like, another example of people, liberals are like, oh, my God, what a great example of, like, how you can be a conservative and, like, still have principles. Um Anthony Kennedy specifically timed his retirement so that Donald Trump would get to appoint somebody and personally suggested slash okayed Brett Kavanaugh as being the person that Donald Trump appointed. So Mm. big fuck you to Anthony Kennedy um, and to Antonin Scalia and less so, I guess, to Sandra Day O'Connor. In the scheme of things, she's not the worst Supreme Court justice we've ever had. The final thing that is just interesting about the Supreme Court, as far as Ronald Reagan is concerned, is that he tried to appoint this guy named Bork. Like, his literal last name is, like, what people in 2009 were putting next to pictures of Sheba's or whatever. I guess we're still saying Bork. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a guy named Bork, who was so batshit crazy, like, conservative, that he was forced to withdraw from the nomination. And, like, it is really, really rare that that happens. Um, Reagan actually also had another nominee um, withdraw, uh, but (laughs) that guy withdrew, this guy Ginsburg, because he admitted um, on a TV interview that he had smoked marijuana in college and people flipped their shit. Um, So, yeah, there were some, like, aborted attempts at uh, finding Supreme Court uh, nominees. Um, Aborted, pun not intended, uh, these people hate abortion. Um, but anyway, in some ways, the like, actually bigger deal was that Reagan um, 
uh, really packed the courts at the lower level with political appointees. So there's also this like idea in American, you know, political thought or whatever that the judiciary is supposed to be politically independent, which is transparently bullshit. But another thing that liberals like to believe Um Richard Nixon. Yeah, did. like how RBG was like BFFs with Scalia. Right, yeah. And they're like, because she's nice. You're like, no. No. It's not nice. Yeah, it's straight <laughs> up trash. Um, and she's also been like, yeah, I think that people need to like chill out on the Brett Kavanaugh thing. Like, no, RBG, like, you need to chill out on being a dick. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> so like, right, or Nixon sort of started this and and it's not like completely new there had been political appointees fdr had considered packing the court at one point um to get like favorable rulings on some of his great depression era legislation um but nixon really was the one who started pushing for um conservatives to take um spots all like all up and down the american judicial system and Ronald Reagan continued that. And one of the really, I mean, there's lots of really big consequences. There's still Reagan appointees on the bench, um, you know, like 30 to 40 years later. And, uh, but like one of the big um, consequences was a lot of the like rollbacks of um, abortion protections happened thanks to uh, like Reagan appointed judges Another big thing that happened is the rollback of um, segregation um, or desegregation uh, procedures. So one example I think that is like really illuminative is like my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. And just like lots of other places in the country, in fact, I think most of the country, Charlotte schools are now more segregated than they were in um, the 1950s. And that's a direct result of um, Ronald Reagan's appointees. And so just as an example, in Charlotte, Charlotte was the home of like, was the the test case for busing in the entire United States. There was a Supreme Court case that ended up mandating busing in Charlotte and in a lot of other places in the U.S. Um, And Charlotte, North Carolina ended up being like actually sort of surprisingly a model for um, how desegregation could work on a national scale. Like people, Charlotte literally sent educators to Boston to help them with their terminally fucked up education slash racism problems. Um, And anyway, in the 1990s, in the early mid 1990s, um, people who didn't like busing in Charlotte actually started, there was a concerted effort to... um, you know, challenged busing in the Supreme or in the court system. It didn't end up making it to the Supreme Court. But uh, what ended up happening was that a Reagan appointee who had been against busing, who had like made that part of like, that was like a formative thing in his like journey to becoming a lawyer and a judge was like uh, not liking busing. Um, and obviously Reagan shared a lot of those views on desegregation um, and using the power of the government to affect, um, you know, measures for equality, um, for racial equality, was the person who ended up deciding this case in Charlotte. 
Um, and it is because of a Reagan appointee that, first of all, like the busing um, w- was ended in Charlotte and we returned to residential um, schools, neighborhood schools. And of course, it, the city is still highly segregated um, residentially. And it also ended up um, setting precedent for a lot of other parts of the country as well. Um, and so Nixon had, like I said, actually been a big part of the strategy to like roll back gains of the civil rights movement through the courts. Um, and Reagan sort of took what Nixon had done and really, really ran with it. And we're still seeing like really serious, um, uh, really serious consequences of that today. <sighs> anyway. Uh, anyway, that's, yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about Nancy, his mm. wife. And the first question I had that which I texted Kellen earlier was Ronald Reagan, a wife guy. Was okay. he a wife guy? I so, think so. So I did a little bit of research about the true definition of a wife guy. <laughs> Because, look, we like to be thorough. I didn't want to spew falsities. Um, And according to Wikipedia, a wife guy is a guy that gets famous from content about his wife. And I kind of feel like Nancy might be a husband girl. (laughs) This is a conclusion I came to. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, if, if, if the definition is becoming famous because of your wife, then yeah, Ronald Reagan's not a wife guy. But he is, like, he was, like, very into, like, Nancy being a big part of his, like, public persona and stuff. But, yeah. Yeah, I guess Nancy Reagan, the original husband girl, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, um, I wanted to talk about the Just Say No campaign that she ran and the War on Drugs. So I'm sure everyone has heard of it. The Just Say No campaign um, became pretty notorious, mostly as a punchline, but we'll talk a little about the origins of that. So there's several reasons why this campaign was horrible. Uh, first of all, it as part of the war on drugs, it's deeply intertwined with race and class and the carceral system, which is a topic I'm going to get to a little bit more and probably something that at some point we'll do a whole episode on, but we'll focus on Nancy's involvement specifically for this episode. Uh, I hate the name of this campaign. I think that just say no sounds like it could have been like this cool thing that taught children, maybe specifically girls about how to like set boundaries. Um, but no, instead, <laughs> it's just a complete fucking mess. So in case this wasn't obvious, the slogan was crafted by two men named Robert Cox and David Cantor. Might have heard of them. Uh, I also wanted to mention that the most popular thing to come out of this campaign was the D.A.R.E. program, mm. which I don't know if everyone goes through this, but it was mandatory at my public school. And it meant that a local cop would come to your classroom once a week and tell you that if you tried drugs, you would be a really bad person. Once a week? Yeah. Did you not have this? No. You didn't have D.A.R.E.? No. Ugh, wow. I mean, I, like, okay. know what D.A.R.E. is. Like, we definitely yeah. got anti-drug programming, but it was not once a week. It was, like, in certain grades. I think we had it in middle school for, like, maybe half of a year and in high school again. 
with like a little more, it got like a little more real in high school. Um, But I remember for my class, I think it was the middle school one, but I can't remember. Um, The dare officer like poured cups of like flavored vitamin water and called me up as a volunteer to drink it. So I drank it because this adult of authority told me to. (laughs) And then she was like, you're dumb because you had no idea what was in that. It could have been anything. I'm a stranger that gave it to you. Like, it was a random drink. Oh, my God. And she was very unimpressed by my retort that I had literally just watched her open a bottle of vitamin water and pour it into the <laughs> cup before class. <laughs> um, and so there are two studies that showed that participations in D.A.R.E. program were more likely to made people more likely to experiment with drugs and alcohol. Oh, my God. Which I won't comment on the accuracy of, but (laughs) there is a um, comedian I like named Corinne Fisher, and she has a bit about how um, the D.A.R.E. program just taught her about, like, how cool doing drugs sounded because they tell you about, like, the effects of each one, and she's just like, yeah, they sounded really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there is that aspect of it. The campaign was originally started by Richard Evans at University of Houston. Um, so Nancy didn't start the campaign, but she did famously champion it, and that is why it became so huge. Uh, she even would visit drug rehab centers to present on Just Say No, which unsurprisingly shows a complete lack of understanding of how drug use and addiction oh to go into God. a drug rehab and be like, did you ever consider um, not? <laughs> Um, and that reminds me a lot about sex education in the U.S., um, specifically abstinence-only education in that they both aim to teach children just, like, to completely abstain from this thing that, you know, as, like, a kid or teen, you're naturally going to become curious about or you might. Um, and uh, it's something that, like, it doesn't really provide a lot of factual information or the tools for safe practice. It's just like, well, don't do it. And if you do, then you're going to be a bad person and probably die sooner. Um, and it's also just a super individualistic viewpoint of drugs of just like, it's your, like each person's ability to either like say no or do them and then be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Very much a morality tale. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and the fear of children getting addicted to drugs also gave rise to the school to prison pipeline Mm -hmm. shortly after Nancy launched the just say no campaign. Um, Congress passed the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act in 1986, which mandated zero tolerance for any drugs or alcohol found on public school grounds. So this brought police officers into schools as security guards. Um, But of course, once police were in the schools, they started arresting students not only for drug possession, but also for minor, minor school code infractions like violating the dress code. Yeah, that's so fucked. Um... Yeah, and I think that, like, it shows the way that just, like, historically women have been really complicit in, like, oppressive policies and also ties in um, to uh, the role that Reagan played in mass incarceration. And we do have, uh, to link again, we do have actually two episodes (laughs) on um, mass incarceration. It was a two-parter that we did. Gosh, that would be like two years ago now. It was like some of, I don't know, sort of towards the beginning of the SOTB run, um, but definitely worth worth checking out. Um, We talk a little bit about like the history of mass incarceration policies, but um, 
uh, also have uh, several guests on, including people who had experience with incarceration, um, like defense attorneys, um, people who work in like immigration justice work. Uh, definitely worth checking out. But yeah, suffice it to say that um, just as Nancy Reagan was pursuing the like this um, just say no campaign, Ronald Reagan was ramping up like racist policing um, and increasing, you know, doing things like increasing mandatory minimums for drug charges um, and also um, vilifying, uh, further vilifying people of color, people in um, cities that had been um, sort of abandoned as white people and people with money rushed to the suburbs. Uh, just again, two children playing a devilish game of uh, leapfrog. Yeah. And, did you have? A, yeah. I was just going to ask, did you have a cop in your school growing up? Because I, I did. No, but see, I went to I went to a private school that started mm-hmm. in Charlotte specifically so that white people could pay to avoid busing. Like my school was a direct oh. legacy of this the case that went to the Supreme Court. Like um, it opened literally like Oz the course that like opened in a very like haphazard way like fuck we got to get this thing started um as the case was like advancing to the supreme court and everybody at the school that I went to was like oh that's just a coincidence it's like no it definitely isn't so not only do we not have a cop people just like we didn't have locks on lockers um or people would like leave their backpacks like just outside um it, yeah, it was like a very uh, an environment that could only be maintained by the fact that like almost everyone there was like very wealthy. So wow. no, I feel like that's really the Kellen origin story for becoming a U.S. historian. <laughs> no, it literally is. Yeah, me being <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck, you guys? This is yeah, literally that. Yeah, it, we had a cop, Officer Jackie. I remember her. <laughs> she just like kind of walked around the hallways and would be like. What are you doing? It's like going to the bathroom, if that is fine with you, ma'am. Wow. Yeah, it was wild. And, yeah, we had, like, this, the fucking dare shit. And, like, it was, like, the local, like, it was, like, a partnership with the, like, local, like, precinct where oh they would God. have, like, different cops come to different classrooms. Oh, my God. Yeah, super fucking weird. We did have a cop come to teach us just the girls self-defense in, like, eighth grade during gym class. Um, And they set a man cop, and he literally did a demonstration where he got this, like, blonde 13, 14-year-old and pinned her on the ground and was like, this is a situation you might find yourself in with an assailant. And then was like, try to escape while he was literally on top of this girl. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, that was fucked up. Um, Anyway, I digress. Um, Although I do think (sighs) that talking about, like, the ways that, like, abstinence-only drug and sex education is linked is, like, a really interesting parallel um, and kind of segues nicely into... I think, like, the final thing that we wanted to talk about, which is the AIDS crisis. Um, And... This is, like, I mean, Reagan did a lot of really fucked up shit. Like, the, um, 
the school to prison pipeline, the mass incarceration stuff was, it was stuff that had been going on before him. A lot of the stuff that he did was sort of, it wasn't totally new. It was like, he took existing trends and made them so much worse or like put people in power who made things so much worse. But the thing about the AIDS crisis is that it was like, it was a thing that was totally new that Reagan just fucked up so badly and so maliciously that I, I just like, I have a lot of like anger and frustration when I, when I think and talk about it. So if that comes across, you are reading me accurately. I am angry and upset. Um, so yeah, at some point I'd like to do like a whole episode actually on the AIDS crisis and on the like, just fucking heroic organizing that queer communities did to respond to it. But since, um, this is an episode on Ronald Reagan, one of the worst human beings to ever exist. We can focus on that instead. So um, just as like a little bit of background, AIDS really began spreading in the United States in the late 1970s. But it wasn't until 1981, um, at the very start of Reagan's first term, that um, a couple of doctors in New York and in L.A., started to notice that they were seeing clusters of a rare cancer um, that was appearing in L.A. and New York among um, men who reported having sex with men. Um, and I read an interview with one doctor who was like, I had been practicing um, uh, uh, medicine for like 30 years prior to this and had only ever seen two cases of this particular type of sarcoma. Um, and then... Like when by the like early or I guess mid 1980s, I had seen 26 cases like that's evidence that there's something going on. Um, and so it was um, something that doctors didn't understand how or why it was happening at first. Um, but it very quickly became clear that there was this um, this type of cancer um, and other sort of um, related health problems that were only afflicting or seemed to only be afflicting at first um, gay men. And a lot of them were young um, and didn't have other health problems. So it was like pretty mystifying, but it because of the population that was being affected, it became sort of sensationalized very quickly. Um, it wasn't until 82 or 83 that the word AIDS or the, the term AIDS autoimmune deficiency syndrome um, was coined to describe uh, what was happening. Um, and just in general, like the Reagan administration refused to acknowledge it. Uh, so the first time that AIDS was ever mentioned in the Reagan White House, at least publicly, was in 1982, when a journalist asked the president's press secretary if Reagan was following the outbreak. Um, and the press secretary response was to laugh. And then he asked the reporter if he was so interested because he had AIDS. Um, and apparently this also was like a really funny joke to most of the press corps. Um, and this journalist like tried over the course of time to like get really like follow this story with the uh, with the Reagan administration to the point that the press secretary like would call on him and be like, here we go. Another AIDS question again, like to laughter. Um, and I think that this is like 
kind of representative of how the Reagan administration handled the crisis as a whole. Um, the pandemic was being covered in newspapers and on TV news over and over and over again in the early 1980s. It was terrifying. People were really, really afraid of, of it. They didn't know how it was transmitted. Um, and there was also this sort of um, voyeurism, I think, too, that was really gripping people that was like, why are all of these gay men um, falling ill of this very rare cancer? Um, and Reagan, like, didn't publicly comment or acknowledge the crisis at all, not once in his entire first term. Um, it actually wasn't even until after he was reelected in 1985 that he finally acknowledged that there was like, there was actually a crisis that was ravaging at that point, not just the gay community, um, but also groups of Americans who were dependent on blood transfusions as well as increasingly um, intravenous drug users. So, with the exception of people like hemophiliacs and other people who needed transfusions as a result of either like acute or of um, long-term medical problems, uh, the fact that the like the usual victims of AIDS were either gay or drug users or both meant that public support for research and treatment was very unpopular, especially with Reagan's conservative base, um, some of whom, as we mentioned earlier, went so far as to describe the AIDS crisis as God's punishment for homosexuality. This is where we throw back to earlier in the episode when we talked about the religious right. Um, in fact, Reagan like actively, and I, I actually didn't know this, I've taught the AIDS crisis a couple of times, and this was new information for me as I was like kind of reviewing stuff for this episode. He actually prevented his surgeon general, this guy named C. Everett Koop, from working on the AIDS crisis at all for the first like two or three years of his presidency. He was barred from airing, from answering questions about AIDS in any press conferences. Um, and finally in 1986, Coop was able to make public a report he had drafted that argued for holistic and education oriented approach, uh, approaches to AIDS prevention. And he was particularly focused on sex education and the importance of condom use. And for obvious reasons, um, Reagan wasn't thrilled about the fact that he was able to get that out to the press. This is just like a side note, actually. Um, and I learned about this from a student because I taught, I taught about the AIDS crisis um, last semester, and one of my students did a really interesting final paper um, about the way that um, uh, condom use was advocated in the context of the AIDS crisis. Because, and I hadn't realized this, um, men who had sex with men just like for the most part were not using condoms at all um, up until like the early 1990s. Um, and because it was seen as primarily or basically exclusively as a form of birth control. Um, and so there was this big hump that advocacy groups, because it was advocacy groups way more than the government under Reagan or under Bush, um, this big push that the advocacy groups had to make to get um, condom use seen as a an important way to prevent the spread of STDs and especially AIDS. Um, because yeah. obviously anal sex was like a possible and frequent vector for transmission. Um, and yeah, I feel like because of heteronormativity as well, yeah. um, like condoms were so advertised, like towards, towards heterosex and just like we, 
it wasn't even really talked about STDs because it was like you won't get one because you shouldn't be having sex and you like especially shouldn't be you know having unsafe sex so like the conversation was more just around like pregnancy yeah yeah I mean absolutely um and that was like that was just that was something that like totally it was something I'd never considered before um and so I have to credit one of my students for like teaching me about that but that was one of these huge hurdles that that um that people who were you know in a compassionate way you know and frequently members of the gay community themselves people who were trying to you know slow the spread of hiv aids um like really had to grapple with because it was just it was such a foreign concept um in a way that is hard to imagine uh today um yeah, so like as you might expect, Reagan and a lot of his advisors saw AIDS, and I keep using I should say I keep using the term AIDS because um, it uh, instead of HIV because AIDS was identified first and was the thing that was killing people. Um, uh, it was during it was during Reagan's term that that AIDS was linked to HIV, the the human immunodeficiency virus. Um, and now we talk about HIV a lot more than AIDS because we can test not only for AIDS, which people could test for in the 1980s because there was not very much money put towards developing a test, um, but they also didn't know how to test for HIV. But now that we have these testing capabilities, we have the ability to um, screen for HIV and um, treat HIV to the point that uh, if it's treated, people don't develop AIDS. Um, which is the really, what is like really dangerous. Um, so that's why I keep saying AIDS, um, rather than HIV. So like I was saying, Reagan and a lot of the people around him, um, saw AIDS as being a result of basically exclusively like coming from immoral behavior. And, you know, there was the, the odd like hemophiliac kid who got a, like a quote unquote tainted blood transfusion. But that was because again, somebody had acted in what was considered to be an immoral way. Um, and, uh, even if Reagan himself didn't go as far to say that gays deserved to die, as we, like we said, some of his supporters on the religious right did, he did, um, deprioritize the disease because of how he viewed the people who were most at risk for his transmission. Um, and like even Coop, who I feel like I talked about as being like a good guy, um, he uh, like seemed like he was way to Reagan's left in the way that he addressed AIDS, but he insisted that abstinence was the best way to combat the epidemic, which like Zoe suggested is essentially the equivalent. I mean, it's not, but you know, it's, abstinence as a means to combat AIDS is basically as effective as Nancy Reagan going to rehab centers and telling people who are struggling with addiction to just say no. Um, it's an insane proposition for a number of reasons, and it's something that public health officials today recognize as being totally ineffectual and also like moralizing and um, offensive. So in the end, um, 90,000 people died of AIDS during Reagan's um, time in office. And um, this is just a documented number. There's probably a lot more people who died um, without actually having been diagnosed um, with AIDS. And uh, the gay community was ravished. Um, but I do want to note that like the solidarity that they showed under those circumstances was incredible um, and uh, really inspiring, I think. 
Still, um, Reagan's inaction set back HIV AIDS research for decades and tens of thousands of people and possibly honestly hundreds of thousands of people over the following years um, died, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And so many more people saw their loved ones suffer and pass away uh, because of the negligence of the Reagan administration and their their refusal um, to act. Yeah, something that um, I learned today, uh, because if you do want to hear more about this specifically, there's a two-parter from Behind the Bastards of about the Reagans and the AIDS crisis specifically. Um, and something that they were talking about is that both prior to taking office and while in office, Reagan did have some notable um kind of gay socialite friends in his circle and stuff like that. So it wasn't necessarily that he hated gay people. He obviously did not respect them or care enough to do anything about it. But there was also this big element of the money that he was receiving, of course, from the evangelical Christian support base and just this like complete cowardice to do anything that he thought might affect his own political gain. So not that I want to get too into like his intentions, obviously, though, everything about the way it played out is horrible, but it's just something I didn't even realize that like he had, you know, quote unquote, like gay friends that which was why um, some gay folks during that election kind of like feared him less than the other, you know, conservative potential candidates because they were like oh well like he knows gay people like maybe he won't you know be as horrible right from his time in hollywood yeah yeah but i know that one of the friends that like i don't know if they got into this in the podcast you listen to but like one of the sort of very prominent friends of of the reagans um, rock who, who was very publicly um suffering from aids uh did ask sort of appeal to them to uh put more funding towards AIDS research. Um, and uh, at least Nancy Reagan responded by essentially cutting him off uh, as a friend. Yeah. And the reason that um, Reagan eventually did, like what really changed the conversation about it nationally was Rock Hudson um, first announcing that he had it, which was his official kind of coming out, even though people like knew that he was gay before that. Um, but because he was, had been kind of closely in an inner circle with Reagan and he was like really well known, um, which I think is also a big class thing like that changed the conversation because people like once kind of celebrities started to have it, it became this like, Oh, we should care. It's not just like poor gay people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, he, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, really like horrific um you know what happened to to hudson as uh you know just like what happened to all of the other people who saw their health ravaged by um by aids uh huh. um yeah and i think that something that like really uh really like goes I don't know, but like when we're thinking about the way that, that Reagan set the tone for how we responded, we as a nation, like the way that the United States responded to the United States were at large, obviously not the queer community responded to AIDS um, is in the way that it is discussed, like even today. So 
you know, I, Zoe, I don't know what your sex education was like. I think we've talked about this a little bit, uh, like what your sex education was like, but I received essentially an abstinence only sex education, um, in school. A lot of what we were shown, it was like, you know, it wasn't, we didn't, we learned about like our, you know, reproductive anatomy or whatever. Uh, but you know, it was mostly like, here's what like various, um, cutaneous STDs look like uh, if you have sex you will get this it's basically like the gym teacher from uh, Mean Girls being like if you have sex you will get pregnant and die um, and a big part of that was uh, was AIDS um, hey. yeah mine wasn't abstinence only but it definitely was not sex positive either um, but we did do the, like, put a condom on a banana, and, like, they showed us all the kinds of birth control, they showed us IUDs, but it was definitely still, like, it was always taught by gym teachers, and it was, like, you know, you could have sex, here's, like, safe practices, but also, like, here's how terrifying STDs are, here's how bad pregnancy is, and, like, yeah. Yeah, and, like, one thing that I didn't realize, literally until I was probably in my definitely I was in my 20s, was like how treatable and livable HIV is today. Like there's still this, I think, you know, huge stigma. And, and I, I, you know, I know that, I, I mean, I everybody listening to this has HIV positive friends if they're not themselves. Like everybody, I think, you know, most people certainly know someone who's positive, even if they aren't aware of that person's um, status, but it is still something that is treated with like such, just such fear um, and, and terror and like lack of knowledge when, you know, with PrEP, which is the um, treatment that's come out in the last few years um, that brings um, basically brings the, brings HIV to undetectable levels in a person's blood and makes it essentially impossible if a person who's positive stays on a PrEP regimen, makes it essentially impossible for that person to transmit HIV. Um, it, it's become really, really treatable. Uh, and I think that the way that it's talked about and with, with still with like it being the, like a, people I think who aren't aware that they, you know, may know people who have HIV um, still, I think frequently see it as a death sentence and that's not the case anymore, but it is something that is really useful to continue stigmatizing, especially gay men, um, people who use intravenous drugs, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that, um, your gay men still have to, you know, state that they've been abstinent for a year to donate blood in the United States, despite the fact that we have the capability now to screen donated blood um, for HIV or AIDS and, uh, you know, a variety of other issues that would come up. Um, and the fact that there's continues to be so much fear around this isn't a reflection of like the scientific reality of, you know, what the world is like for people who have HIV, assuming that they have access to treatment, which is obviously a whole other issue. Um, but it is the stigma remains. And I think that the like the Reagan presidency really, really set the tone for that. Yeah. Maybe that was a downer of a way to end the episode. <laughs> I guess I didn't think through this. Like, if we're going to talk about Ronald Reagan, it's like, it's not going to be positive. But, um, you well, know. You know, we've coined the term uh, husband girl. 
right, there's a positive, um, you know, and like, I do think that like, you know, if we're, we're ending, we ended it with the, with the AIDS crisis, like so much of like modern activism owes, you know, owes its, its, uh, strategies to act up, which was, um, one of the main coalitions to, uh, fight for recognition of, um, of AIDS to fight for uh, funding to demand more from Reagan and, and the presidents who followed and various other leaders. Um, and I think that like ACT UP is just like one of the most inspiring groups of like Americans to have ever existed. Uh, I think the queer community owes them a great debt. And um, it is, I mean, it is like people despite like having shit bags, like absolute shit bags, cannot overstate the degree of shitbagginess in the presidency like people have like found ways to build solidarity and like and fight and I, I do think like that's that's inspiring you know yeah definitely see you turn it around <sighs> after god what is this the 110th episode something like that you know we've we've <laughs> develop strategies to not end on just like the absolute worst possible note um so anyway i guess that's our episode on ronald reagan um if you want to hear more uh of our of our stuff um you know we are on itunes we're on soundcloud and just about everywhere you find podcasts um you, besides spotify besides spotify which my, is making me sad with all of the end of year things that like we don't have the privilege of being tagged in those. So, mm, but it's only fair to all other artists that we not be on there, you know, like, yeah, we don't want to make them feel bad. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, if your end of year playlist didn't include season of the bitch, that's fine. We know it didn't. We're not on Spotify. Um, and, uh, my grudge against Spotify continues. That's fine. Um, you can also find us on Patreon uh send some money our way for us to keep being able to produce these kinds of episodes there's lots of exclusive content that's on there um just for people who support us on patreon if you're a patreon supporter you may be listening to this episode early which is another benefit you get from supporting us there um you can always find us on twitter and instagram at season of the b you can send us an email at season of the b at gmail.com um, you know, give us your thoughts, rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes is always helpful, except if you're going to give us a low rating, in which case, you know, save, save your time and energy. Just don't do it. Um, yeah, it's not, you're a bad feminist if you do, I think. That's what I heard. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that about sums it up. Zoe, yeah. anything else? No, I uh, I think that's about it. And um, yeah, maybe go do something nice now because this was a downer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, have a great day. Yeah, have a good day. We, we hope your day is, uh, yeah, filled with joy and laughter and not thinking anymore about Ronald Reagan. Um, that, that was for the people that tweeted us like, I love you guys, but you make me sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Sorry, not sorry. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you gotta learn. Some of our episodes are fun. This one wasn't. Go listen to Feminists of the Animal Kingdom. That's a real joy. Uh, Ronald Reagan was not a feminist of the Animal Kingdom. He is a terrible human. I think that about sums it up. 
Zoe, I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.